Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I always say Eagles fans are crazy. They're nothing compared to the, some of these overseas fans. Like, they won't be able to sleep for weeks if, like, the game is close. I'm like, these guys are gangsters. They, we, lost, we won by eight, and we should have won by ten, and they probably lost, like, thousands of thousands of dollars. So, of course, they're going to threaten our lives because they're losing money. And our guest this week is Kevin Owens. He's a Camden Catholic product. He went to Monmouth University to play hoops. He had a long career playing overseas, and he is also the author of a tremendous book, Overseas Famous, The Travels and Tribulations of a Basketball Globetrotter. Kevin, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. It's going to be fun. So let's start with the idea of a book. I know prior to the book coming out, you had been doing a lot of writing, had some opportunities with uh, I think it was Slam and some other magazines. Uh, but the idea of a book kind of give me the origin story for how you decided when you decided to put this together. I was I I honestly was writing for Slam and I was putting all these blogs together and I remember just dropping them into a folder and because you know you every, my computer is pretty much like my car it's just stuff everywhere and I ended up just starting to put everything into one folder. And I remember I looked at that folder probably like five years ago. I was going through an old computer and I looked through that folder and realized all of these stories were still there. And this is when I, you know, I'm five years, six years removed from writing for Slam Magazine. And I start looking through those and I'm like, these stories aren't even online anymore and no one can find them. And I was like, let me try to put this, put these things together and just see what happens. And as I started going, I just started finding these stories and adding some stories from my childhood that I always thought were something that were entertaining. And as I started going, I thought this it was becoming more and more something and it was becoming more and more entertaining. And I'm listen, I have zero self-confidence. So when I laugh at myself, I'm like, all right, I'm on to something here. Because <laughs> there's a few times when I would write it out and reread it and I would laugh out loud and I'd be like, wow. Like, okay, that's a really good story because I do not think I'm funny, and I thought that was funny. How long did it take you from the po that point where I should start putting this together to you've got the book in your hand? I believe it was probably around two years. I started putting th things together. I started adding, and I would put a story in from the blog, and then I'd add around that, and then I'd make a chapter. And at first... I had information and a lot of stuff, but it was disorganized. And I didn't know how I was going to put it. Was I going to just have this section be this section, this section be this section? And I wasn't going to tell any stories about high school or college. It was just going to be about me playing overseas. And then as I started going, I was like, well, there's some good stories about the D-League, so I should put these in. But even though that's different than overseas, and I was like, you know what? I'm putting the whole thing. I was like, whatever. This is going to become an, a straight-up autobiography. So I just put everything in. And I think that kind of gave, gave it a little more life because you kind of saw where I came from and the things that, that made me who I was. Like, how do you become an overseas player? And it's just a lot of the tribulations because people, I think, think it's a very easy process. So I wanted to kind of take people through my story to show not only is it difficult to play overseas, but playing overseas is just a completely different element. It's something that's so unique uh, to basketball that not a lot of people really understand. Writing a book and putting, I think it's one thing to write a book. It's another thing to write a book about yourself. Yeah. Was it to put, yourself out there and you talked about self-confidence like to to have that was it difficult to 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 decide to include that and to to kind of you know you're kind of laying yourself bare here i think that was the hardest part was putting myself out there and saying this is who i am and i feel a lot of people who have read the book have come back to me and said this book is you 
that I can hear you saying these things. I can hear you doing these things. The people who really knew me personally really felt it was a good representation of who I was. And that was scary to me because as a person with not a ton of confidence, you are exposing yourself to the world and you're exposing yourself to critics and you're exposing yourself to people who say this book stinks or your story's boring or what have you, or you're not funny or you're not good enough. It was tough. And I think that was something that I struggled with. Even putting some stories in, I was like, should I put this in? And I decided, you know what, whatever, put it in. Even the weird stories from high school, I just thought they were funny. And I thought it was just a way to, you know, humble myself and not, which I've always done. I've never taken any myself too seriously. And I just wanted to, it was a humbling experience, but at the same time, it was fun. The the things that make it easy, really cool are when people come back and say that they really enjoyed reading this and never even met me. That's the coolest thing in the world when they're like, I can, I feel like I know you, like we were just talking about, but we never met before. Yeah. And if you read this, you, you know, specifically with the stories you tell growing up and they're just incredibly human, they're incredibly relatable. And I think every person will be reading a story and go, oh, my God, I know exactly <laughs> that angst he is talking about. And he is exactly putting it right. So I'm curious. You talked about the blogs and everything. Did you journal as a kid? Like, did you chronicle growing up? I did. I would. I used to write. I remember I won a creative writing contest when I was in fourth grade. It was more for like the fourth grade class. And then I won this when I was I won that creative contest again for the whole school when I was in sixth grade. And I remember holding on to those papers because I was very proud of it. And I always that was something I started doing. I would write down things. I would write down important things that that happened. Just I remember my dad telling me it was a good way to my dad wrote a book as well, uh, more about minor league baseball. But he would tell me to write these things down because you never know, you know, when you have to look back at on it. And when you, when you write things out, it, it becomes real to you. It becomes when you read it back, it's, it's, it's not just some passing thought that goes through your head. And I thought that was real. And I used to write down a lot. Um, and when I started blogging, that was kind of where it came from. I mean, I legitimately was waiting for a job to go play overseas. The original blog was called Waiting for Godunk, uh, a play on the Waiting for Godot. Mm -hmm. And I honestly was just sitting there one day and I was kind of mad because I was waiting for a job and I just hurt my knee and I was frustrated and I wasn't where I wanted to be and I wasn't playing and it was February or January or February. And I'm like, I need a job. So I just started writing and that kind of picked up a lot of the things that the, the slam magazines, all of them picked me up because they thought it was an interesting and unique story. So I think the, the starting early was, was definitely big. And I think a lot of guys, you know, I always tell guys, if you're overseas, write it down, write everything down because you never know what you can turn it into. Even if it's just for you, even if it's for your kids, write everything down, enjoy it, take videos, do everything journals this whole entire process could so unique another thing i think you do really well is you can feel your how you develop as a basketball player you do a great job of kind of letting people into how you view yourself as a player and how you evolve as a player and i want to kind of get into your hoops career now uh camden catholic high school you were kind of a late bloomer right yes i didn't start until my senior year in high school, which kids hear that now and they just can't fathom that you become a professional basketball player after not starting since like freshman year because the pressures that I think go on it. And I didn't start till senior year. I just grew quit later and I grew then really rapidly from 6'1", 6'2", to about 6'10 in months, like, like a year and change. Like it was not that long of a time. So when you grow like that, you're so awkward. Not that I wasn't awkward already. I mean, I was, but I became double awkward of an awkward person. So I was just, you couldn't even move. And it was just so weird to, to get used to your body. I think of it now when I try to play basketball now, when I used to be able to jump pretty high and now I'll try to jump and there nothing happens. And then I miss a layup and I'm like, how did that happen? 
because your brain is telling you you can to do it certain way. So you have to retrain your brain to play a different way. And that took time. And by the time I was ready, it was I was a senior, and that's when I really took off. And I can only imagine as an aside, that must have been hell for your parents buying clothes and stuff like that to have you growing like that. <laughs> yeah. My mom, my mom, look, we didn't we never had like the fancy shoes. And I think because my parents knew, you know, some of the kids I went to school with, they're they're slow growers. They're using they're buying Jordans and slipping into them for like two years. That didn't happen with us. It was like we're buying shoes every six months. So they're not spending money on shoes when they're like, no, sorry. We're not spending money on this when you're going to be out of them. And there was no eBay back then where you can sell them. They would just sit there and sit in our laundry room. So you talk about being a late bloomer. Now, your brother, Jeff, played at Penn. And he, how older, how many years older than you is he? Jeff's two years older than me. And he obviously had been recruited. So you had a, a pretty good feel for what that was like. Uh, you end up at Monmouth, but kind of tell people what the recruiting uh, world was like for you, uh, you know, I guess basically during that senior year. I think, like you said, I had some experience. I remember watching some of these coaches come in and talk to my brother, and I was that dorky little brother sitting there just trying to, uh, you know, you were just a dork. I just was sitting there trying to show off and be weird and try to make people laugh. And that's what I did for the first part. So when it became time for me to go through it, it was such a flip of a switch of you can't be this this entertainer anymore. Now these people are here to see you. You need to hone in. You need to listen to what they're saying and then really focus in. So I think the the, the one memory I have that was crazy was we used to – high school basketball used to be such a big thing with summer leagues. AU kind of took over. But we had this Cherry Hill East uh, Summer League, and every good player would play in it, every good team. And South Jersey was loaded with Division One talent. And I remember sitting at games, and like every coach you could ever hear of, Cal Parry, uh, Gary Miller, all of these big-name coaches would sit in there and watch us because it wasn't there wasn't the internet where you can watch video. It was everyone was there. And I remember I shot two free throws, and I had to make both of them to win the game. And all these coaches are lined up underneath me. And for some reason, I just didn't feel any pressure. I just kind of sat there and I buried both of them. And I walked away and we won the game. And that was like a huge moment where the letters exploded. I guess people were like, no, he's got that mentality. And all of a sudden, it was just crazy how many letters came flying in from people, that, those, those coaches just watching me make those two free throws. Did you enjoy the process of recruiting, of having that type of attention? I did. I thought it was cool. I would just, I liked being coveted. Uh, I thought that was a, a fun thing. And growing up as the youngest child, everyone else was had kind of had their their shot. So I was always that, just the one who never was really, you know, no one wanted to pick me first. I was just the little brother annoying. And when I finally had that shot, it really did. I feel like that was kind of the start of this developing confidence that I was getting to kind of be like, wow, these guys actually are here to see me. And that early high school, I didn't have that confidence. And once that process started, it was fun. It was fun to have these coaches calling you in the house, but I, you never, I never took it too seriously, which is crazy now that I look back on it. But I remember being, sitting there and I would be talking on the phone with all these college coaches and you're a kid too. So you're like 16 years old and you're like, I want to go hang out with my friends, but I'm sitting here at my kitchen table all night talking to, to grown men who are like, just telling me like, Hey, here's what I like. Here's our school. And I'm like, that's awesome. I'm like so honored. But at the same time, like my friends are eating pizza at their house and like, here I am talking to you. So there's just this, that's just how my mind worked. I was just like this, this nervous high school, middle school angst to go along with being this high caliber basketball player. You end up at Monmouth. What, what sold you on Monmouth? Honesty. They, there's people that, you know, they, I felt like there was a lot of BS that you kind of had to deal with. And a lot of guys telling you this and that, and this and that. And Monmouth was very honest. They're like, listen, we want you to come in, but you're probably going to red shirt. You know, you're going to have to earn a starting spot, but we really enjoy 
you know, what you can do and what you can bring. If you work hard, you will be a player that could score a thousand points. Uh, but we're bringing you in, not we're bringing you into redshirt and see what your development has. A lot of other people were promising other things and they were the first ones that were like, no, like this is what you could be, but we're not promising you anything. And I thought the honesty about that was just incredible. And I gravitated towards that honesty. And I mean, they, they held true. I redshirted my first year and I earned everything and I ended up scoring a thousand points. So it really worked out well. Uh, and I think just honesty, Wayne Zoak, Dave Calloway, they just were honest people. And they were good people. And it felt like a family. It wasn't this generic college uh, atmosphere. It was like these guys felt like a family. They, they, and that's where I came from, from Camden Catholic. And that's where I wanted to stay in a family situation. You talk about your time at Monmouth and a lot of memories. Uh, and you got the chance. I think it was your sophomore year. You guys won the conference yep. and went to the NCAA tournament. Uh, and like a lot of smaller schools, there's the joy of getting into the tournament and then the, uh, kind of, uh, the eye opening of when the bracket is <laughs> unveiled. Oh, we get to play Duke. Exactly. Uh, but what was, uh, what was that like? Kind of take, you do You talk about it in the book and I don't want to give too much away. Well, what the emotions of, of that, of hitting the top of the mountain and then kind of reality smacking you down. Well, a lot of people, and I know, I just think I'm very, I'm pretty honest with how I, how I think. And I think I'm the way I think is not wildly different than the way other players think. I'm just the one who says it. So I know we, we go in, we, we win the tournament. We're psyched. We're awesome. This is great. We're making the NCAA tournament. We draw Duke. And you're like, this is awesome, Duke. This is so cool to play. And there's so much pomp and circumstance that you just almost don't even really think about the game. You're thinking it's this all this celebration, and that's your championship. I mean, for a team that's going to be a 16 seed in the NCAA tournament, that's your celebration. You won the championship. And now it's like, oh, by the way, you have to play Duke, and you actually have to play them. And you're kind of like, oh. Wait a minute. And when that starts setting in that you're actually playing this game um, and you're playing against guys that are very, very talented, it's a scary thing. And I think that was something I was kind of nervous. I like kind of the the morning of I was overtaken with nervousness because you're playing Duke and you don't want to go out and get destroyed on national television. I think that was something that I feared. And honestly, um, it took me a while to kind of calm down and just start realizing like this is such a cool experience just live your life just like enjoy enjoy the moment don't worry about what could happen just enjoy the moment and that's what i started doing but there was that crazy nervousness that you're playing the best team college college basketball team pretty much ever assembled in on national tv and this is before my friends were all saying you know we got blown out we went down early and Back then, there was like four games playing at a time. Now you can watch every game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they said that it was like our game went and they switched it off. It was like immediately <laughs> CBS is like, okay, we're going to take you over here now. <laughs> I was like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other memories of your college days? College, man, I just, I really enjoyed my team. I enjoyed playing. Uh, we went to Hawaii. And we knocked off Vanderbilt. We knocked off Akron. Uh, we we had some some of those moments that I know the newer Mammoth teams have accomplished, knocking off Notre Dame and things like that. And that was fun. I remember those games where you were playing a top team and a top twenty five team. Those were a lot of fun. It became once we got past that Duke, which was really the first time we played a top twenty five team. Once we got past that. It's like you you breathe. You were able to breathe and just be like, all right, cool. Like, we got this. Like, this is no big thing. And you play the Gonzagas. Gonzaga came to our place. That was really fun. That was with, like, the Blake Steps and Dan Dickows, Casey Calvary's. Like, that was, the, you know, that when Gonzaga was really starting to become a really strong program. And they came to Monmouth. And I thought that was an incredible experience to have a team of that caliber come to our school. And I think those were those are some of the experiences I took away of just playing those in those games that were so meaningful 
and being able to really compete against some of the best players in the world and realize that you can compete. And I think that's what I realized more when I went to the G League that like, wow, I actually can compete with these guys. Like they went to big schools, but you know, I'm a late bloomer and I'm getting better and better each time. And here I am giving you buckets and you can't do anything about it. Even though you go here and you have this on your uniform, I have this on my uniform. It doesn't matter. So I think those are the memories I take with me most from Monmouth. And you mentioned the D League. It it it's the G League now. It used to be the D League, and yep. that was your first uh, the Roanoke Dazzle, correct? Yep, the God, Roanoke that's a, Dazzle. That's a wonderful name. Uh, <laughs> uh, talk about had you thought overseas right away, or? you wanted to to go kind of the i guess the quote unquote more traditional with the nba uh as the the end goal correct yeah and it was crazy because when i started with the g with the g league i was looking i went to an exposure camp i got a lot of good reviews um i actually got offered a contract uh i think it was in cyprus to play in cyprus when i first got done the uh the exposure camp but I also, around the same time, got offered to play in the D-League. And I was like, you know what? Why would I go to, you know, why would I explore overseas when I could go to a place where I'm close to the NBA and who knows what could happen? So I went to the D-League. And it was tough because I was the same thing. I was like a seventh round or eighth round pick. Um, and most of the, there's 10 guys in the roster. They already had like four or five that were coming back. And then they went through this 10-round draft. And only like five or six people could make the team. And when you get picked seventh in the seventh round or eighth round, you're kind of like, well, there's no shot that they're going to make the team. And I really, it was tough. And my coach kind of told my brother who was playing on the, the team at the same time, like he's going to get cut just so you know. And I really had to go out there and grind. And it's like everything else in my life, like same with Mammoth. Like I had to, I had to earn everything on the basketball court that I've ever been given. Um, nothing was ever just handed to me. Like my coach told my brother, he's like, we're going to cut him, but I'll draft him. So you guys can spend two weeks together at training camp. And I surprised everyone. So those are the things I'm most proud of with my career is just the, the fact that I just kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And everyone kept telling me no and no and no. And I just kept breaking down walls. And I think that's something that's, that was one of the main reasons for writing the book too, to just be like, almost inspiration for guys who think that you don't start your freshman year in high school, your life is over. So overall, and you tell great stories about the D league. I think it, you know, you had a regular at the waffle house, uh, oh, yeah. stuff, stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, what was it like night in night out? This is, you know, I think people, same thing with minor league baseball. A lot of casual fans kind of think the minor leagues, Oh, a lot of it's just like the big, it is not. Like you can't yeah. imagine the the difference, and it sounds like same thing for the for the Roanoke Dazzle from from the NBA. Yes, you're you're only a phone call away from reaching the NBA dream, but man, is it a difference of one to the other? Oh, absolutely. I think that's it's it is wild when you kind of think about it. it like the the major differences between the two. And just like everything, I just think with, you know, basketball in general, it's just, there's just so many crazy things that you experience. And I just think that when you, when you step into that arena, like you're just, you're, you're doing battle and it's just, it was a scary thing. And I just think that that's something that I really had to get better at, but yeah, it's just a different world. Like this whole entire thing is just so different than I ever imagined it being. Talk about the thought process, the decision to focus on overseas. Because you spent two, three years with the Dazzle, yeah. am I correct? Yeah, so it was like three years with the Dazzle. I went to Poland the one, the one, uh, I guess the one preseason. Mm -hmm. So I went to Poland in August of my second year or third year in the D-League. Uh, before I went back to the D-League, I went to Poland and I was there for a few months. and. The money kind of dried up and they just brought me in the office and they're like, hey, by the way, we don't have money. So, you know, go home. <laughs> I was like, all right. Uh, so that was my first experience with overseas. And you're kind of like, yikes, like this is crazy. And my brother at the same time had played in Poland before. And 
had money issues, then was in, he was in France and was doing everything right. Um, but I kind of just, that was the, my first experience. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I went back to the D league, the D league at the time, like you made no money, like legit, no money. It was, it was bad. And I know like there's all the baseball. That's a huge topic right now with minor league baseball. So I can definitely relate because you, you have to provide for yourself. They gave you an apartment, but at the same time, you're really, you're, you have to provide your own meals. You're, you have to get to get to and from practice, you know, transportation and stuff is on you and it, you weren't making anything. So it was very tough. And I know people, you know, will be like poor little pro basketball player, but that was tough. And I just decided, you know what, I need to make some money doing this. And I think that's when I said, after my third year, I was going to stop. I was going to be done because I didn't make the NBA. And I went to France with my brother, talked to him. He kind of talked me into playing a little bit more. I kept working out that summer. And that's when I got the contract in Australia. And that's when I started headed overseas to kind of, you know, continue everything for the overseas life for the remainder of my career. Yeah. You talk about the situation in Poland and I've yeah. talked with other guys that have gone overseas, not necessarily with Poland, but you know, where, I might get paid. I might not, you know, or yeah. half the team might get paid. And if we don't get to the bank by three o'clock, the checks are going to bounce. Like everybody, uh -huh. a lot of people have had those types of situations, you know, and you're what, 23, 24, 25 at this time where, yeah. you, you know, when they keep telling you the money's going to be there and it's not going to be there and you're getting the runaround. Are you, are you scared? You're in Poland. You don't know anyone and the money's drying up or were you kind of too young to be scared and just kind of rolling with it? I think I was too young to be scared. Honestly, it's weird because everyone assumes, I guess, that you're people forget how old basketball players are when they're in their prime. And when you're 25, 26, I mean, most people are making really success in their business in their 30s and their 40s. So when you're 20s, you're pretty much just learning the business, learning how to do things. And that's what any job you're really in the intermediate, intermediate like stages of your life. So to be dealing with something like this where they're just like we're not going to pay you today and you're like okay you're almost so naive that you just are kind of like all right well they'll pay me tomorrow and that's why i think so many guys end up just staying in these situations because you don't really understand and you're so trusting and you're so believing that when someone says they're going to pay you you're a 24 year old kid you're like sounds great okay no no problem tomorrow sounds great no problem and then the tomorrow becomes that and it's just you don't have the maturity level to to realize that you're kind of getting screwed around until you're you know at 40 now i understand 41 now i'm like i would be going in a second but at 20 something you just don't understand time for a break on one-on-one -on -one. we will have more with kevin owens right after this and we are back on one-on-one. -on -one. Our guest is Kevin Owens, a Camden Catholic product, a longtime professional basketball player overseas, and he's written a fantastic book. It's called Overseas Famous, The Travels and Tribulations of a Basketball Globetrotter. So you mentioned you get the contract in Australia, and Australia ends up kind of being the other end of the spectrum as far as the the quality of the league and mm -hmm. uh, the experience. You tell a great story about partying in Australia and, <laughs> and stuff like that. I don't want to ruin it. I want people to read the book. Uh, but uh, I mean, could uh, Australia just, it sounds like it almost that might be a place that if you had the chance, you'd do that all over again. I would do it in a heartbeat. And I look, I th think about it because I did have a contract on the table to go back to Australia before I took the Korea deal. And I think about that often if what my life would have been like if had I said, you know what, I'm going to Australia, like I'm going to head, I'm going to go back there. I'm not, I'm, I understand this is probably like $150,000, $175,000 more that I would get, be getting paid and a, or a different pay cut. But I'm like, whatever, I'm going back to where I'm happy. But again, I'm a young kid chasing that money and you just, I had been in the deal like making nothing. So when people are flashing money in your face, when you're young, cha-ching, like I'm what <laughs> I'm thinking about what I can get, what I can do. And I'm a stupid, irresponsible kid. So I just chase the money. 
But Australia is the ideal place to play. And I've told many players over the years that it's such a great league. It's a very competitive league. I mean, we look at what Josh Giddy and LaMelo Ball uh, are doing. And it's just a, it's a league that's very strong. You have strong coaches. You have strong players. And it's fun, too. It's a, it's, it's a very good preparation. And I will say, if I look at the G League, and I, I can't speak on the G League because I never really played there. I played in the D League where we played in mostly empty arenas and things like that. But the MBL in Australia was very, it was like the baby NBA because there was very good competition. You were playing tough games and every game was a sellout. The, every game you went to was just, it was packed with people. The crowd was a very NBA crowd. They weren't crazy throwing stuff at you. That came later. Um, but they were just cool. They were just chill. They would, they understood the game. They enjoyed it. They would cheer for you. They, you know, get on you when you did bad. And it was just a good experience. But in terms of, I mean, and lifestyle in Australia, my God, it's like, there's not many lifestyles like that one. It's heaven. It's, it really is a perfect place to live. So then you mentioned uh, next stop was South Korea and talk a little bit about, I, I found fascinating the, the way you were kind of introduced to, I, I guess it was a, a tryout or a giant meeting hall where you kind of, yeah. if, uh, and eventually if you're going to get drafted and at first you went through all this and you didn't get the call, right? Yeah. So I went to Vegas, which was where the KBL tryouts were in July and went through the whole entire gauntlet. Cause I knew my agents like, listen, they pay tons of money. Like let's get in on this. So I was like, all right, went there and I really played well. And I, I was, you know, me, I'm, I'm not confident guy, but I went through and, and I was so certain I was getting picked because I was just like, I destroyed everyone. Like, I think I was the best player at this event. And I thought that in my mind and I believed that. And when I, we go through the draft and my name's not called, I mean, I was pissed. Sorry, mad. I'm not going <laughs> to I was it's all mad. <laughs> I like just was not okay with that because I thought that was the first time in my life. I had worked so hard and I, I had already dealt with the rejection as a young age of like, okay, you're not going to start until this. You didn't make this team. You didn't make and I, that was tough. But now I was like, I'm good. Now I'm, I'm really good. So I'm not playing this game anymore. So that was when it, that one hurt because I was better than the, what they, what was out there and they didn't draft me. So I went home to, from Vegas mad. And then they gave me a call a few weeks later. I had, this other offer on the table and then he called me he's like you still want to go to korea i'm like yeah what's going on he's like this is what they're offering you this is what's going you have to leave in like two days i'm like all right let's go so that was kind of how it went down and korea was an interesting place <laughs> yeah i mean we talk about you know you're not getting paid in poland you mentioned people throwing stuff at you and we'll get to that later in your career <laughs> when you're on the court in Korea, you were kind of, and it's one of the things that's fascinating about your career and what you put forth in the book is kind of a lot of these places, they all had kind of the, the, the challenge that was at the top of the list. And in Poland, it was getting the money, you know, in Kosovo it was evading flares. We'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but in Korea, it was kind of the training staff. You got hurt and it sounds like you had the gang that couldn't shoot straight trying to, to work on your knee. It was, the, it, I really, I, can only compare it to to a cartoon because these guys i do and that's the thing you you are so trusting of your medical career to people that you have no idea what their experience is what their qualifications are their credentials you have no idea suddenly they just appear in front of you and the team is like they're wearing your team stuff and saying talking to another language as like pointing at things and you're like this must be a medical professional who i'm going to trust with my entire future of the rest of my life and my, and my joints. And you just kind of go with it. And these guys had no idea what they were doing. They were, they came first. I was like, I was holding this, my right knee and just showing them pointing to it. And they went immediately to my left knee and they started like messing with it. And I was like, no. And they, they like, kind of like shush me. They're like, and they're doing stuff. And I was like, are they just checking the joints? And then they tried to lift me up to like, carry me off the court 
and I'm my left like and they're just they're like almost putting having me walk on my right knee while like lifting my left knee I was like it's this knee and my translator came over and he was terrible and he told them and then they were like oh and they put me back on the floor and tested the right knee their correct knee which is also the right knee (laughs) but it was just ridiculous and then they just messed up everything uh they just didn't know what they were doing they never gave me an MRI. They never checked anything. And I ended up, you know, with a pretty bad significant injury that I just went home and had to rehab and cure on my own. And uh, like at my own expense after they just kind of released me because they're like, well, you're hurt. I was like, I don't really understand what's happening right now. Yeah. And basically they, you did, you know, you had these whole conversations with them that then they kind of denied ever taking place. Right. Yeah. It was crazy. I've like, I think I put in the book the exact email exchange between the two. And it was just wild because I also, this is like before cell phones. And I think about if I had a cell phone on me, I'd be like, I'd have all that money right now because I would just record, would have just recorded Mm -hmm. it. But I didn't have a cell phone, like a personal cell phone that I was bringing. And I just kind of was like, all right, I guess, you know, they're going to, and again, I was 27 years old. You're just a trusting person, even after all the stuff that has happened, but I just come back from Australia. So I was like, well, everything was on time. Everything was great in Australia. No one would ever do this again. And they're like, yeah. So they just ghosted me, just told me that the things that I said never happened. And what can you do? And every, every lawyer that I talked to said, the only issue we're going to have is this is going to be tried in Korean court. It's not going to be tried in American courts. So you have like a 0% chance of winning. And that was kind of the, what happens overseas. These guys, you're getting your, if there's an issue, FIBA, no one will protect you because they, they'll just bring in another import and you're just left up to the laws of the country that you're at who are going to protect the people. And this is Hyundai. I was going to sue Hyundai, Hyundai cars, because that's who owned the, the team. So I was going after Hyundai, which, and me going after Hyundai, they're just like, yeah, you're not going to win that case in Korea. So you just kind of dealt with it and wrote about it in the book. <laughs> did the, the situation, the situation in Korea after having such a positive situation in Australia, did it kind of hit even harder because the, the bar had been raised so high and then you had this happen to you? It did. Mentally, it definitely messed with my mind. I felt like I just, I'd given so much and done so much. And now I'm back to where I was before. And on top of it, I have a bad knee. And I just, it hurt with my trust. It hurt because I was back home rehabbing an injury with no money, no anything. And that was just, it was a very, very tough situation to deal with. So I think that's what made it very difficult that I just, couldn't do anything about it so that was that was probably the most difficult thing of just being home and no one could help you and mentally i just started struggling with that and how were you uh were you gun shy about going overseas anywhere after the your situation there i kind of was i remember being a little more hesitant and i knew i was never going to go back to korea i I, and the worst thing was I had offered, got offered when I came home from South Korea, I was hurt and my knee, I like was rehabbing my knee, but it was, I had a, I had a really bad bone bruise. Um, I would like, think about like Andrew Bynum, like the kind of same injury that kind of ruined his career. I had that happen where my knee had hyperextended and kind of almost crushed my patella. And I just couldn't. Like I couldn't really put weight on it. I couldn't play anything lateral didn't work at that time. And I was rehabbing. So when a team in Australia was like, Hey, can you come? I told my agent, I was like, yeah, I can, I can do it. And he's like, what's your need? What does your doctor said? And, and uh, he's like, I need to hear almost like, I need to hear it from him. Like I'm not sending you over to New Zealand and you end up or to Australia and you end up, you know, playing terribly because you can't move your knee. So, uh, he had to clear it with my doctor. My doctor didn't clear me to play. He's like, no, you're nowhere close. So that was a tough thing because I had to decline another contract and I would have played through it. I would have been like, whatever, but I knew I wouldn't have been a hundred percent. So I eventually 
got better. And, uh, you know, a few months later, I got a deal to play in the New Zealand Basketball League, which is kind of like a league that a lot of NBA, the players in Australia play in during the off season. So I ended up getting a contract and playing there. And I was, I was pretty excited to go there because I just wanted to see if my knee worked. And plus I was going back to the New Zealand, Australia area where I was very comfortable and happy with. And it's interesting. And I think it was in Australia. You talk about this during these years here, because you could always rebound and that was kind of your thing early in your yeah. career. And I think you said it was during Australia when you started to kind of say you know what i need to score points too and yep. your game really really blossomed kind of talk about that uh kind of that development and what was there like an aha moment with a coach or something or was it just as you mature as a person and as a player you kind of know that i can do this i think it was a little of both i definitely had those moments where you would score and i would ha put up 20 and i'd be like oh that wasn't so hard and I think the biggest thing with me is I was such a I was taught team basketball so much at a young age that when I was I never wanted to be that selfish guy who just shot the ball so much like that was looked down upon growing up. You didn't want to be the guy, the gunner, we used to call him the guys who just would shoot and shoot and shoot. So I just kind of stayed in my lane and I rebounded the ball and I knew I could score a little bit, but that was never my thing. And especially when I was in the D League my coach would be like, you're not making it to the NBA by scoring 30 points a game. So if you go to the G, if you go to the D league and you were just, <laughs> you go through and you're scoring 30 points a game, but doing nothing else, like they, there's a thousand people can score 30 points a game. It's like, what can you do? You better do it really well. And that's when I really honed in on rebounding. And, um, I then kind of took that throughout overseas and then, there is a, a moment and I, there was a guy, Sean Redditch. He played for, for Perth. And I remember I had a move on him in the game and I kind of like swept it through and I went to go up, but I like dished it off. And he's like, you were wide open. He's like, shoot the ball every time. He's like, they're going to need you to score. They're releasing you. And it was like one of those things that just happened in the game, but Sean was a, an American. And I remember it was just like that, that quick conversation that happens on the basketball court. And I remember being like, oh, shit, or shoot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I better probably not, you know, I should, I should probably try to score more. And I remember I, that's when I started going to practice. And I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to try to score here. I'm going to try to score here. And that was, that became something that really helped me because I'm like, that was that moment where I was like, all right, they're paying me to score a lot of, to score. They're not paying me just to rebound. This isn't the D league anymore. These guys want you to come out. You're an import. Your job is to score points and get rebounds. You need to do be like the superstar. And that's what kind of, I put that in my mind. It was a tough mindset to have. Same thing. Like everything that I've gone through has been a learning experience, a growing process. And that was a huge one too, to kind of be like, wow, you're a scorer now. You've got to score, score the ball. Need to take another break on one-on-one. -on -one. We will have more with Kevin Owens right after this. And we are back continuing to chat with Kevin Owens, author of the book Overseas Famous, The Travels and Tribulations of a Basketball Globetrotter. So you go to New Zealand and then after New Zealand, you go to Kosovo. And I'm just curious, how aware were you of where you were going with Kosovo, like a, a war torn nation? Did you know what you were getting into or was it just an opportunity? And yeah, I think I heard about it on the news. It'll be fine. I think that's what you kind of think. I mean, there were some situations like I got an offer in Syria and that was a little more, uh, that's a little more scary because you knew more about that. But Kosovo was kind of like, all right, it's in Europe. It's not far from Greece. It's right over the, uh, you know, it's next to Macedonia, which is just a, a boat ride to Italy. So you kind of just put it in perspective like that. And you just went. And I don't think I even realized it. it was that crazy. I get there. They lose my bags. I'm like, this is great. But when we're driving out of the airport, now this is an airport. This is the Pristina Airport in Kosovo, which is Pristina is the capital of Kosovo. I'm in the capital city of a country. And as I'm driving away from the airport, we, we, it like a bumps. And I'm like, what is that? We're on a dirt road. Like we, the, the, the exit to the, to the airport took you onto a dirt road. And that's what took you into the capital. And I was like, 
this can't be real life. And that was that moment where I realized, you know, it's not, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> this is, you're in a whole different world. And that I, there was a little anxiety because you, you just weren't used to that. That's something you, you never, ever saw before, like pulling out of Philadelphia airport and then hopping onto like a gravel road. You'd be like, what just happened? It's just so un so uncommon. So that was kind of that first experience where I was like, all right, where am I? This is, this is a little scary. And I, in Kosovo, you're going to like meetings with fan clubs and these fan clubs are like WTF. Why, what are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why didn't you beat this team by more? Like, like, oh, yeah. did you did what, did you realize what these fan clubs were and how many of these meetings did you sit through before you were like, what is going on? There's, there was a few and those were honestly the most intimidating because I didn't know. I honestly, that was the first time in my entire career that I thought this guy could probably kill me and no one would like there, there would be no concert. Like they could get away with murdering me. And I was, and that was that first time because I just didn't ever think that way. Basketball was just basketball was a game. And these guys, they were gangsters. They were 100%, you know, they were carrying guns and they had weapons and you, they bring them to games and you kind of saw all that. But you thought they had your back, but then they would bring you in and, you know, be real mad at you if you and they would bring the Americans in like the three of us. And they're always on our my one friend, Brad, like they just were on him every time. And they, they were kind of on me, but, you know, I was doing my, my part. They were really on Brad. And I remember just being like, these guys, who knows what they're capable of? I have no idea if they're if they're going to, you know, just take us out. And that was a scary thing because I just never thought that that would be, I would be in a situation where you're almost playing for your life. And um, I don't know that for a fact. I just remember that I was getting that vibe a few times. Like if you're not, if you don't do well, like that could be the end. And I don't think they were talking about my contract. <laughs> I was like, all right, this is. Ridiculous. And this is, you guys were basically undefeated, right? Undefeated. Yeah. We lost the first game we lost, but they would say that even if we like, if we won a close game, like they would bring us in and be like, it's not good enough. And you're like, but we won. Uh, you're not putting up enough stats. And you're like, but I just had like 18 and 12. Like, what are you talking about? So you're like, whatever. So, but that, that the one they really brought us in. And that was that time when I really thought they could kill us right now. We, we had not lost the game since I'd been there. And we were in the semifinals or no, we were in the finals. We we're in the finals and we lost the game in the final. Like it's a best of seven series or best of five series. And we lost one game. We we're up like two, nothing. And we lost the game that would have won it for us at the, at the other team's place. And they lost their minds. Like they couldn't believe that we lost. And I'm like, this is like another professional team we're playing. It's not just, it's, we're not playing eighth graders. Like they're really good. So that was an eye opening experience to kind of hear these guys freak out on you for losing one game one basketball game in the championship. And then we came back and won the next one anyway. And we're like, all right, see ya. We're out. <laughs> yeah. And the next one, you know, that we, we referenced like people throwing stuff on the court and, and flares yeah. like this, the championship of this league in Kosovo, you talk about how they literally had to separate the two fan bases. Mm -hmm. And as the game's going on, things are just unraveling in a not good way. Uh, to the point where like you guys are are looking for the e for triple zeros on the clock and yep. to, to hit the exits and you talk about somebody shoots a shooting flares in the air kind of as much I don't want to once again don't want to get too much away from the book but <laughs> but but kind of give us the lay of the land of this championship game. It's just it it was the loudest I think I've ever heard an arena. Now it was a smaller arena than you know an, an uh, Australian league or the NBA arena. It was smaller. It was probably like a, like a, I would say Cameron indoor, you know, where it's a, a big place, but it's not big where you can get, but it's really, really loud. And I remember in the middle of the game, I, I felt that was the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. Like where I thought my eardrums could burst because it was so loud and the fans are just so passionate. They're cr going crazy. So you're already dealing with this kind of, stigma of everyone screaming and yelling and you're used to that as a, a player but i've never heard it that loud 
And then when we start going up and it's kind of the, the game is within reach. We're like, we're winning this game. They can't, there's nothing they can really do to, to win. They start throwing stuff and it's like breaking windows. And it just became, you're like, you're in the scene. And sometimes you, you, there's always this, like, I always felt in Kosovo in the back of my, you know, that pit in your stomach, you just kind of felt uneasy at all times. And even when you're playing, there was this uneasiness and it's crazy because it was the first time where I was ever, you know, I need to focus on playing. You're just, your mind is like, let's win this game. But there it was, there was something else. It was just in the pit of my stomach. Like, yes, I want to win this game. But at the same time, I also don't want to die. And it was just, it was combining these things that you shouldn't be thinking about as an athlete. Uh, when you were playing because you know when people start throwing stuff and the fans are, are really have to be separated and police are coming out in full riot gear and it's just it, it's an uneasy feeling that you're not used to when you play in the united states it's like something you've never seen and it's not uncommon that's the crazy thing is you hear these stories all the time got like flares being thrown onto the court like guys are it's just a different world like the fans are passionate and they're willing, they're, like, their lives revolve around a win or a loss of your team. And I always say Eagles fans are crazy. They're nothing compared to the, some of these overseas fans. Like they're, they, they're, they won't be able to sleep for weeks if like the game is close. Like I don't, and I'm, that's why I think there's a lot of betting on things over there. <laughs> that was the underlying thing that I'm like, these guys are gangsters. They, we, lost, we won by eight and we should have won by 10. And they probably lost like thousands of thousands of dollars. So of course they're going to threaten our lives because they're losing money. So I got no proof for that, but that's just speculation. <laughs> and you, you know, the Kosovo part of the book is one of my favorite parts of the book because you tell a great story, <laughs> a great human story about getting lost. Yeah. And it's just something that no one thinks about when you think about and the way you portray it, it once again, you can see yourself in that situation and running out of gas going somewhere. And that's like <laughs> these are some of my favorite anecdotes were from that part. But next up, I think the last stop of your career was Estonia. Yeah. And, you know, at, before you even go to Estonia, are you starting to get into the mindset between the knee and everything that this is coming to an end pretty soon? Yeah. Like when I was in Kosovo, I thought I was playing well. But I definitely, I mean, Kosovo is not exactly, you know, the top league in Greece or Germany or Spain. So I wasn't, I knew, you know, I wasn't, wasn't really getting that top flight anymore. And once you go to South Korea, you get a stigma on your name that you go for money. And European teams are, it's hard to get back into Europe. Like you have to kind of grind it out at some of these lower level teams. And I knew I was 30 years old and I'm like, I like, I don't have all of this time to sit there and grind it out and go from Kosovo to Estonia to maybe another team into Switzerland and then like higher and higher leagues. Because by the time I'm done, I'm going to be like 38 years old and my body was already breaking down and I wasn't playing as well as I knew I could, like my as my body should be able to play. And that was something I was kind of like, I'm not on that same level. So going into Estonia, it was the same thing. I think... I was writing a lot at that time and I was, you know, had articles featured in ESPN. I was writing for slam and I, they took me and I was like, there's probably part of this where they want to gain exposure for their league. Cause I went to the top team in Estonia. So I was like, they probably want some exposure because there's really good players there and they might want a good player who can also bring some attention to them, to the, to the league and stuff like that. So I think that signing me was multi, multi, a multi, uh, win for them but going there i definitely thought that was probably going to be my last stop and i was like let me see how i play and i thought i played well but it wasn't again i was like i'm not playing to the level i was a few like a few years ago before i hurt my knee i just don't have the same kick anymore i don't have the same push off anymore i can't jump off it anymore and it was just like this knee is really unless i get re constructive surgery and i'm out for two years like i'm already struggling to get jobs like i I think we're i think this is going to be the last stop on the tour talk a little bit about and once again one of the things about the book is the way you 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 talk about these incredibly for lack of a better term like mundane problems that we all go through but you're going through them as a basketball player overseas 
<laughs> the your routine of getting the car ready every morning because Estonia huh? is it's freezing there, and yeah. you just you tell this that you really do a great job of just you know every day anytime you wanted to go out it was a thing to just get the car ready. I I try to I listen. This is I live in South Jersey. We get snow occasionally. And I know my daughter loves snow and it's just, it's a fun thing, but I never experienced, and I always loved snow growing up too, but I never experienced snow where it became like a pain. Like it was, it was starting to become annoying because every day it would snow. I mean, it was, if it didn't snow one day, then it would snow a foot the next. And every day I'd go out and I'd brush all the snow off my, my car. And I had this like tiny car that was four wheel drive. I honestly, I'm not a physics guy. But some phys- I don't physically know how this car was able to do what it was able to do in this co- these conditions. It was like so small, but I brush it off and I just rock it back and forth in these ice plow and and break through. And I was like, it has to be four wheel drive, but I never pushed a button or anything. But that was crazy. And it, it, the crazier thing was, I would get done playing and you'd get back in the car and you'd be sweating and the condensation would go and that all of that would freeze. So you'd like go back in the next day and you have to like scrape the ice off the win- outside windows, the inside. It was just, I was like, this is a lot of work to just get in my car and go to the store. <laughs> like this is, this is wild because it was so cold at all times that whenever you walked outside to go and do anything we used to have two practices a day you'd have to do this whole entire routine because it, the second you got out of your car like everything would freeze and you just have ice all over your car or snow and it was just like this sucks <laughs> i'm curious we, we talked about all these different stops and and the d-league and everything was there a point where you let go of the idea of ever making it to the nba where was there ever a conscious discussion with yourself like all right i think it's going to be overseas here and this is going to be as long as i'm going to play this is going to be the route or was there always kind of the competitive a spark somewhere deep in your brain that you know what if the right guy sees me and the right person talks to my agent you never know like was there ever a conscious idea that i'm the nba is just not going to happen for me i think it was when i got done the d league i think that last game in the d league I knew I wasn't going back there. I knew for a fact that I was not going back to the D league another year. I'd been there for three years, like back and forth to Poland. I played for the same team. I also kind of, there, there was rumors that, that which it ended up happening that the Roanoke dazzle were going to go, go, you know, under which they ended up doing. That was the last year. Um, and I kind of, I was like, all right, this is, I'm not going to be playing here next year. Let me see what's going on. And I kind of put it away in my mind. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go get some money. Let's just go enjoy basketball and get some money. And I honestly did. I didn't think about the NBA uh, after that. Like I was, I, I had a, you know, an interest in the, from an NBA team. Uh, at one time they wanted me to come and work out and I came in and worked out for them. And that kind of sprung it up again. But I just really, it was, it was more like, you know what? I'm just here to try to play basketball for as long as I possibly can. Let's just see where this takes me. And overseas, that's what your your mindset becomes. Like some some guys are still like, I'm getting back to the league. Most guys are like, let's just make the boat most out of this. Let's become the best player I can in this league. And when you're in the NBA G League, you're you're it's always in the kind of the back of your mind, the NBA. It's like always like, all right, it's so attainable because anyone can see me at any time. When you're overseas, it's so far away, and you almost just have to focus on what you need to do well to make yourself successful in that moment. And that's when I kind of started really living in that moment and not worrying about, you know, what could be with the NBA. And it just kind of was like, all right, let's just see where this world takes, where this, <laughs> where this path takes me. Any regrets about any of it, or any decisions you didn't make, or any choices you didn't make? Going to South Korea, I definitely have regrets. Um, I think about I think about that a lot. I think about if I knew everyone says this, if you knew what you do now. Um, but I think about like even in the D League, I wish there was someone who kind of like I who who taught me like how to condition my body to be this like monster. Like I was either too big or too skinny 
And I was, and I finally, like in Australia, I hit that mark where I was like, I was just right. It was like finding the porridge. Like I was just right in Australia, but in the G league, I, I, I like was really skinny and I put on a lot of weight and got big. And I kind of had to cut down because I was like a little slower. And I just wish there was like a strength coach or something that would have grabbed me. Like the NBA hired a strength coach or something to be like, Hey, this is what you need to do to get in the NBA. I wish like we, our coaches were there to coach us to become the best, but a lot of them, none of them really had, I mean, some of some of the assistant coaches, Chucky Brown and stuff had NBA experience, but not a lot of them were like right there to be like, okay, this is how you need to do train your body. This is how you have to do this. It was, I wish there was like an NBA trainer that could have came in and helped some of those G league guys out and been like, all right, let's put you, let's, give you an NBA workout right now as opposed to a G League workout. And I think that would have been something that I would have you're like so close. And those are the things I think about. Like if I just had maybe that little someone helping me develop my body and develop my jumping and things a little earlier than I did in Australia, I could have been this. I could have been that. But no real regrets. I love my life. I love my life now. I'm just, you know, it's, it is what it is, and I wouldn't have the book. I wouldn't have my daughter. Everything happens for a reason, and I'm happy with how it turned out. And the book is Overseas Famous, The Travels and Tribulations of a Basketball Globetrotter. Kevin Owens, thanks so much for taking the time. This was great. I appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Kevin Owens for being our guest. Once again, the book Overseas Famous, The Travels and Tribulations of a Basketball Globetrotter. If you like the show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should should know more about.